Today I'm continuing our sermon series entitled The Cost of Discipleship. So far, following Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his classic book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, we've talked about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace requires no change of behavior, no obedience, and so it is the false idea of justification of sin without justification of the sinner. But costly grace, on the other hand, means following Jesus in such a way that we abandon all trust in ourselves, that we surrender all we are and all we have to him. Such grace is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. It is costly because it costs Jesus' own life. It costs God the life of his Son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. We've also talked about in recent weeks how many Christians, including even Christian pastors, will try to insist that grace is all-sufficient, that it's all we need. There is nothing else required of us. That there's nothing one has to do but speak the word or raise your hand or sign the card to profess to having faith, and then grace covers everything. But as we said last week, true faith requires obedience. And any faith that does not have obedience is not really faith. That's what Jesus and his disciples clearly teach us in the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John the Apostle in 1 John 2 says, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And James, the half-brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem Council, in the epistle of James, writes that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It is true that we are saved by faith through grace, but faith that does not include obedience is not really faith. So over the past several weeks of this sermon series, we've looked at all that this means to us, that we are called to put Jesus before everything and everyone in our lives. Last week, we even considered Jesus' very difficult words, that unless we hate our parents, our spouse and children, our brothers and sisters, we are not worthy to be called his disciples. Even though Jesus here, as we talked about last week, was speaking in hyperbole, meaning he was exaggerating intentionally to make a very strong point, it still boils down to the fact that we are called upon to put Jesus before everything else, even our families, if we are to be a true disciple and follower. But that isn't all, as if that weren't already enough. To be a true follower of Jesus means not only putting him and our relationship with him before everything else and being willing to give everything up if he calls us to that, it also means that we must completely change our values. Change our values in a way that the world simply will not be able to understand. In a way, in fact, it will cause some people to think there's something wrong with us. Perhaps even to think that we are insane. To understand what I mean by that, let's look at a scripture passage for today's sermon, which is Matthew 5, beginning with verse 38. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, 
go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. This passage in Matthew 5 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And let's just say right up front, by any human standard, this is simply impossible. So impossible that it seems crazy to us. But most of us have heard this so many times. We've heard turn the other cheek so often that we've lost the ability to see how really impossible and crazy that is by any standard of values that exists in the world we live in. Don't resist an evil person. Don't defend yourself if attacked, but allow and almost encourage your assailant to hit you again. If you are forced to do labor, do more than is demanded. If you are sued by someone, give them more than they are asking for. Give to anyone who asks without questioning, loan to people without challenge, love your enemies, pray for your persecutors. Love those who don't love you back. Greet your enemies as your friends. Those aren't my words. That's what Jesus says. And this is crazy. Who could possibly do this? Why would anyone choose to live like this? Well, when we read this impossible, crazy description of how we are supposed to live and of what our values are supposed to be, we have to focus on who said it. These crazy instructions come to us directly from Jesus. And Jesus not only said this is how we're supposed to act, he modeled this in his own life. And in doing so, he proved that it really is possible. When Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate to be tried, Jesus asked him if he were the king of the Jews. And Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate asked the question, was Jesus the king of the Jews? Because he assumed that if Jesus was a king, then he would have a kingdom. And that that kingdom, like every kingdom that Pilate knew anything about, would have geographical, ethnic, nationalistic, or ideological lines. There would be some boundaries around which this kingdom was formed. But Jesus makes it clear that there aren't many kingdoms with different geographical regions. But basically there are only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And there is the kingdom of the world. There really aren't any other choices. And the kingdom of the world is the only one that we know about apart from God's intervention in our lives. It is the one that runs on self-interest and greed, on violence and conquest, on anger and revenge. 
It is the kingdom that focuses always on us against them, whoever them might be. Another religion, another country, another political party. Everything is us against them. In the last 120 years, there have been less than two decades that there have not been major wars in our world. Major wars. The kingdom of the world is the kingdom where war and oppression is the constant and apparently the natural state of things. Because this kingdom of the world and the standards and values it manifests are all that we know. It's all we have been brought up in. It sounds crazy to us if we really listen when Jesus tells us not to fight against our enemies. When he tells us not to defend ourselves against assault and not to guard our possessions from people who might want to take them from us. But that is what he says. Jesus' words only sound crazy to us because we have followed the lead and the example that we've been given in this kingdom of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of this world. And that ruler is Satan himself. In Luke 4, the devil tempts Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world during the temptation in the desert. And the devil says, To you I will give their glory, that is the glory of these kingdoms, and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I can give it to whoever I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus, of course, does not worship the devil to acquire these kingdoms, but he never disputes that the devil does have a right to claim ownership of the kingdoms of the world. At least for the time being, as long as God allows it. Three times elsewhere in John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And the Apostle John goes so far as to claim that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This world is under the control of Satan himself. And as we are all part of this world, we are part of Satan's kingdom. And we have inherited all of the values that Satan has imbued in this kingdom of the world. The highest value of this kingdom, and the one we give into, is the value of power. How to get it, and how to keep it. Whether it be power over another nation, power over another tribe, power over a member of our family, or a neighbor. That's why if you hit me, my natural fallen instinct is to hit you back, not to turn the other cheek. If you try to take my possessions, I will fight to prevent you from doing so. Tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that is what makes the bloody kingdom of the world go round. That is the kingdom of Satan. And all because we humans try to find our worth, significance, and security in power, possessions, traditions, reputation, religious behavior, tribe, or nation, that's where we seek our security rather than in a relationship with God our Father, our Creator. Jesus is saying our security will never come from those things or the values that try to get those things. It will only come from our relationship with God. Jesus makes it very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. That his kingdom operates with a different set of values, a completely different set of values, and a different understanding of power and what is important. Jesus, through whom all of creation was made, 
chose to allow himself to be ridiculed and beaten and betrayed and crucified, which looked like weakness to everyone, but was in fact the most powerful act in the history of the universe. It is the kingdom of God that is represented in the cross of Christ, and it includes all of those who are truly committed to be the servants and followers of Jesus, those who are willing to accept the costly grace of discipleship. The unique nature of the heavenly kingdom is revealed in a discussion that Jesus had with his disciples. They had been arguing over which of them was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and this was right at the end. This was... This occurs in the upper room at the Last Supper, right before the crucifixion of Jesus. They had been traveling with him for three years. Still, they're arguing arguing over which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who will have the most power? They were, in their own way, exhibiting exactly a kingdom-of-the-world mindset, competing with one another to be more esteemed, to be more influential, to be more powerful. And Jesus responded by saying this, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Oh, I'm going to control your life, but it's for your own good. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Remember, it is the model of Jesus that we are to look to. Jesus said these words to his followers during the Last Supper, and at the last meal with his followers, after saying these words, Jesus stands up, takes a towel, wraps it around himself, and washes the feet of his disciples the act of the lowliest of servants. This one who was the king of the universe washed the feet of his his disciples. And not only that, he washed the feet of men whom he knew in just a few hours were going to reject and betray him. And still, he knelt and washed their feet. That is not something that the kingdom of the world would recognize as a powerful act. The master of all became the servant of those who would betray him, and then he specifically told them he was doing it as a model for how they are supposed to act, that they should wash one another's feet. That is what we are to be doing. But how? How do we do that? given the fact that this is so foreign to the whole world and the values of the world we live in? How do we reject the kingdom of this world and become true citizens of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus invites us into? Well, it is possible. And we know it's possible not only because Jesus modeled it, but because those who were his followers on that day, after a time of betraying him, returned And as best we know, every one of them suffered martyrdom rather than sacrifice the truth of Jesus Christ. They were hacked to death with swords, crucified, crucified upside down, cast off cliffs, boiled alive, shot with arrows. And one of the astonishing things that we have recorded in the Roman world 
is that people were astonished that they did so without anger, without malice toward those who were persecuting and killing them, without any sense in which they were choosing to be the enemies of those who oppressed them. Not only Jesus, but his immediate followers demonstrated what it meant to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can too. First, we have to accept Jesus as not only being our Savior, which can happen even with cheap grace, but that he is our Master and our Lord as well. We must accept the costly grace that means committing ourselves to being obedient to him, to seeking to be like him and to be prepared as he calls us to, to give up anything that comes between us and him. That's first. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Master as well as Savior. Second, we Christians must recognize that the values that Jesus taught us and he calls us to are simply the opposite of what most values the people in the world think are important. We have to recognize that we are foreigners here. We do not fit in. We do not belong. And we shouldn't try to fit in and belong. We should still be in the world. We're told to be salt and light to the world. And as I've often said, you can't be salt and light if you don't get close enough to non-Christians for them to taste you and see you. But we cannot be like them. We cannot share their values. No No matter what others might say about us, our life is not about influence or power or winning. It is about love. The love that Jesus taught and modeled. It is not what Christians often in these days think that we should be having political or social influence, we should defeat our enemies, we should be prepared to go to war, we should make the world the way we think it ought to be. Well, it's fascinating to me that we pick and choose the verses we want to use when we decide what the world should look like, and we often do not pick these verses. It is not about our nation or our tribe or our race or our political affiliation. It is not about being a Democrat or a Republican, a Canadian or a Mexican or an American. If we make those our focus, our values, then we have gotten it wrong because those are the values of the world. It is about Jesus. And it is about being like him and being obedient to what he calls us to. It is about treating everyone, especially our enemies, the way Jesus treated them. By loving them, by washing their feet, by saving them, even those he knew would betray him. It is about loving Muslims. It is about loving open sinners. This is what Jesus did. It's about praying for others. And again, especially for our enemies. Feeding them, helping them, wishing them well. But we also must recognize that by our own power, we cannot defeat the control of the devil over this world. It is not about us trying to take over the nation or the world and making it over in what we think is the Christian image. We are not going to defeat devil in this world. We are not going to be able even to overcome the influence he has over us by our own power. But by the power of God and by the grace that Jesus gives us, we can change ourselves if we ask for his help. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, 
From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do you hear that? Do you hear that differentiation? We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, not from us, not from our efforts. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose book The Cost of Discipleship inspired this series, and it is a great book if you haven't read it, I recommend it. Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. We don't want to hear that. But it's true. In Bonhoeffer's case, it was quite literally true. As he was executed by the Nazis for his refusal to give in to the pressure that they applied on the confessing church. Even if we never are called, as Bonhoeffer was, to suffer physical martyrdom, we still, as Christians, are called to die. We are called to die to ourselves. We are called to die to earthly attachments, to possessions, and to relationships, to die to the values and motivations of the kingdom of the world and all that Satan says is important. This is hard, and we will never be perfect at it. By our own power, we can't achieve it at all. But Jesus is with us. It is he who calls us to this, and he wants to help us to make us into the new creation that he desires for us to be. It is not just up to us. It's interesting that last week we looked at Jesus' use of hyperbole. Again, hyperbole is use of exaggeration to make a very strong point. When Jesus said, you must hate your father and mother, he didn't literally mean to hate them, but he meant that compared to him, we cannot hold those relationships as more important. He must come first. Well, today, this week, we have another example of Jesus using hyperbole. At the end of the passage, here in Matthew 5, after telling us all the impossible and crazy things that we should do in contradiction to all the values of the world, Jesus then says that we should, and I quote, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do all these things and you will be perfect as your father's perfect. Again, this is hyperbole. Jesus does not expect that we can truly become as perfect as God the Father. But he does mean two things. One, we have to strive to be as perfect as we can. And we can be far better at following the kingdom values than we usually are. If we are to be an obedient follower of his, if we are to be trying to be citizens of Jesus' heavenly kingdom and not acquiesce to the values of this world, we have to be able to go against the stream that the world teaches us. We have to be willing to do things that the world's not going to understand. They're going to think it's crazy. Turning the other cheek, loving our enemies, washing the feet of those who wish to do us harm. G.K. Chesterton said, Any dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. We are told to go against the stream, and that is a sign of our life in Jesus Christ. We are all called to be the living ones of Jesus, who swim against the stream of all the world's and all of Satan's values. And secondly, when Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, 
We must realize that God our Father is perfect. He is able to do all things. And He desires to help us become more like Him. If we will let Him change us and let Him make us more like Jesus, His Son, and our Savior. Amen.